want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. So you launched your subscription model. You proved that there were people who wanted what you were offering and that those people would continue to subscribe after joining. You're holding everything together with paper clips and duct tape, maybe with your kitchen table as global headquarters. Now it's time to operationalize your business. You need a real team, systems to support your processes, and metrics to let you know how the business is doing. Today's guest, Matt Fiedler, is the co-founder and chairman at Vinyl Me Please, a record of the month club and online record store. After launching in 2013, Matt successfully scaled Vinyl Me Please to more than $15 million in revenue while establishing the brand as one of the largest direct-to-consumer vinyl retailers and one of the most admired and respected brands in music. Today, we're talking about how Matt scaled Vinyl Me Please from a labor of love for a few fellow music fans to a $15 million business, how he operationalized that business without losing the personal touch, and how he decided when the time was right to step back as a founder. Welcome to Subscription Stories, Matt. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Take me back, if you will, to the day when you sent out your first shipment. Can you tell me what that day was like and who you were sending those early boxes to? So when we first had the idea for what became Vinyl Me Please, it wasn't like we were looking at some charts and saw just a tremendous business opportunity in vinyl. You know, that was kind of the, this was early or mid 2012 that we were thinking about the idea. It was kind of the the beginning of the resurgence of vinyl, so to speak. For us, it was really just, it was kind of born out of this curiosity. So Spotify had just entered the US and the whole model from a consumer's perspective was changing from paying for ownership to paying for access. And that was great. You know, Spotify's totally transformed the way that we listen to music, the way that we share, discover, and so on and so forth. But there was just a piece of that experience that felt like it was missing. You know, when I was a kid, I had a ton of CDs. My dad had a big record collection. And that tangibility, that tactile experience with music was something that I really appreciated. And so when we had the idea for Vinyl Me Please, it was really just kind of a series of what if questions. You know, it was like, what if there are people like us? What if there are people that want to discover new music that want to build a record collection, maybe don't know where to start. And most importantly, what if there are people that want to like connect and be with other music lovers around the world? And so that became the seeds that initially kind of grew into what is now Vinyl Me Please. So in December of 2012, we basically put up a landing page and just had an email capture. We shared it on our first personal Facebook pages or LinkedIn pages or whatever it might be. And just said, hey, we're going to try this thing. Put your email address in if you're interested. I think we had like 50 people sign up. And it was funny because we had a lot of people that were like, why would I pay people to pick music for me when they don't know what I like? You know, we weren't preaching personalization. We weren't preaching a lot of the algorithmic things that were just starting to become popular at the time. It was more of like, this is a journey to discover new music and build a record collection. So from that 50 or so people that put their email in, I think about 12 of them signed up in their first month, which is kind of funny now if you look at where the business is today. It's like it all started with 12 people. 
And strangely enough, I don't think we really had that close a connection with those 12 people. It was people that I think had put in their email, but I really don't know how they found out about us. I think there was maybe one or two people that were close friends at the time, but it wasn't like it was all friends and family. And in terms of what they said, they were just like, this is interesting. This is kind of exciting. I don't know quite what to expect, but it seems like a journey that I'm willing to go on. And I'm interested enough in building a record collection. I'm interested enough in in discovering new music that this feels like a pretty low cost way to, to try and do that. So you talk a lot about credibility. And even in that story that you just shared, you know, there's two kinds of credibility. There's credibility within the music industry. So you just send off an email to someone's manager and say, hey, send us some records and we'll pay you later. And then on the other side, you have these subscribers who are trusting you with their music collection. I talk a lot about how trust is really critical, especially in subscription businesses, because you're asking for long-term commitments. And so I'm really curious about how you thought about credibility, especially when you were getting started. Trust and credibility and all that stuff are things that are built out over time, right? And so for us, I think credibility came from the fact that we were continuing to show up every month. We were continuing to deliver. In the early days, we didn't have any money to spend on marketing. So we really tried to make our product as exciting and as remarkable as we could so that when somebody received it, they would you know, take a picture and put it on Instagram or put it on Facebook or tell their friend or what have you and really kind of generate that word of mouth marketing. But then as we started to expose people to things that they wouldn't have otherwise discovered, then the value prop became really clear for Vinyl Me Please in that it was very much an experience. It was very much a journey. It was very much, you know, the value and the curation was there. And that really allowed us to build the credibility. And that has grown over time. Now you can go to our website, you can see you know, effectively our resume of titles that we featured of artists that we've worked with in the past. And you could very quickly say like, oh, this is really interesting for me. I haven't heard of this. I've heard of this. It's familiar, but this is totally new and undiscovered. And that's really unique. And people found a lot of value. And so the first couple of months, we had nothing to stand on. But by the time we had been had 12 months under our belt, we had 12 things that we could go back and say, this is who we are. This is the type of music that we feature. If it's for you, great. If it's not, that's fine too. You know, we weren't trying to force anybody into it. Why would established musical acts give you their inventory? Was it hard to get that inventory? Why did they trust you early on? And how did you build relationships with them? As an outsider, I'm not a vinyl expert. Mm -hmm. I would think, well, you just go and you buy some inventory and they give it to you if they have it because that's business. But it sounds like it's, it's not that easy in the world of music. And I'd love for you to share some of those challenges yeah. on the acquisition side, on the music side that maybe people might not understand. It's different than, let's say, buying a certain product at a store yep. and then sticking it in your box. Yeah, honestly, in the early days, we were working with unestablished artists. So buying 10 or 15 copies of a record was a huge deal for them. They weren't selling that many in a day or a week or whatever. And so getting the opportunity to sell that many records at once and then be a part of this story in this platform was something that was unique to them. you know. And it was high dollar value, high margin. Streaming in general has for a long time been criticized for artists earning like pennies on a dollar for one play of music. So to be able to go to an artist and say, we want to buy 15 or 20 copies, they were like, oh, hell yeah, that's amazing. And also you're going to celebrate me and you're going to talk about me for an entire month. And you're going to introduce me to people that have never heard of me before. Like, that's great. That's really exciting. But the bigger artists, bigger artists at the time did not care. You know, they could sell that many records by sending out a single tweet in seconds or whatever. So it really took time for us to like prove who we were and the fact that we were willing to 
take chances on some things and some artists that were unknown and undiscovered and unestablished and grow from that. But then to be able to bring that to a bigger artist as our inventory demand grew and as we were buying more copies, it really then became a key piece of their business model. To summarize, it sounds like, especially early on, you were going with lesser known acts. So they were grateful to you for mm-hmm. the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And from that, you were able to build credibility with the more well-known acts. And when the well-known acts saw that who you had picked, that also added to your credibility where they said, oh, these guys actually have interesting taste and a point of view. And we'd be comfortable and happy to support them, even though we don't have to because our business is going well. So if you were going to describe today what your promise is to members, what is that promise that you make to a member? Subscribe to VMP and we promise what? You know, that's something that we've always struggled with in terms of like articulating. But the basis behind the company, the basis behind our mission is really this idea of exploring music together, which is really about bringing people together through music. And so what we're trying to do on a monthly basis is create transcendent, tangible journeys through music. Finally, please is not necessarily for the people who know exactly what they want. It's for the people that are willing to go on a journey, that are willing to kind of take a chance on something that they may or may not know. And we always say that huge piece of discovery of listening to new music is actually kind of a process of self-discovery as well. So I think when people start to look at Vinyl Me Please and they start to consider Vinyl Me Please and they're looking at all the things that we've done in the past, all the artists that we've worked with in the past, there's kind of a mixture of things that they're familiar with and things that they've seen before, maybe heard of before, and maybe albums that they love. But then there's also a pretty healthy mix of things that they've never heard of before. Things that they're like, what is this? And then they listen to it and they're like, holy cow, this is amazing. I never would have discovered this otherwise. And that's kind of the peak experience that we're trying to offer with VMP. So it's it's kind of the mixture of that familiar music, those names that are kind of like the homestyle kicking, along with the things that are totally undiscovered and unique and being able to craft those journeys for people through music. So in terms of the promise you'd make, if you were sitting on an airplane back when we traveled on airplanes next to somebody, how would you know that they were the kind of person who would get great value from Vinyl Me Please? And how would you describe it to them in a kind of elevator pitch way in a sentence or two? You should join Vinyl Me Please because why? The way that I would often say that is, you know, the first thing I'd say is like, it's a record of the month club, an online record store. And they'd be like, wow, that's crazy. They still make records. They're still selling records. And it'd be, yeah, it's really great. Actually, it's this cool way to listen to music because it's a tangible, it's a tactile experience. You have the opportunity to go deep and get a much deeper connection with the artist and with the music. And, you know, we have a bunch of different ways that you can interact with the company. We've got three different subscription tracks that are all kind of a different flavor of curation. There's Essentials, which is kind of a a mixture of everything. There's Classics, which is really centered around soul, blues, and jazz music. And then there's Rap and Hip Hop, obviously centered around Rap and Hip Hop. And so when you sign up for a subscription, we send you a new record, something that we've selected that based on what we think is essential to the modern vinyl collection, it's pressed exclusively for our members. So it's something that you can't get anywhere else. And it's bound to be something that's interesting and unique in some capacity. Maybe it's something that you heard of before, maybe it's not. But at the end of the day, it's not necessarily a question as to whether or not you like it. It's an opportunity to listen to something new. It's an opportunity to get a deeper sense of who the artist is, the frame of mind that they were in when they were making the music. And hopefully through that process, you're able to discover something new about yourself or the world or whatever it might be. So can you describe Vinyl Me Please as it is today? Who is your ideal member and how do they interact with you each week? The basis with which we started the company really remains true today. 
I've done a lot of work over the last you know year to two years to kind of get a better sense of like what was that initial DNA and how do we articulate it. So we still have, tactically speaking, there's a subscription model. So now we have three tracks. We're launching a fourth one next month for VMP country. But then there's also kind of traditional e-commerce. And then we have another product called Anthology as well. So you can come in, you can interact with VMP in any of those contexts. If you're a member, you sign up for a subscription, then you get special perks inside of e-commerce. You get discounted pricing, free shipping, first access. If you're just, you don't want to subscribe, if you're not ready to subscribe, you can still buy things from us through the e-commerce. Those things are obviously going to be priced at a premium and you're going to have to pay for shipping and so on and so forth. Or you can just follow us on Instagram. We have a weekly email that we send out as well that is just kind of a bunch of new content, playlists, music to listen to, and that type of stuff. And really, our cadence is on a monthly basis. So every month, we're sending out a new record for the subscribers. But every week, we're releasing new titles from in our store. And those are things that are also exclusively pressed for VMP members, things that you can't get anywhere else. As a member, you can log in and buy them. They'll just be shipped with your next monthly shipment. And if you're not a member, you log in and buy them and they ship whenever they come in stock. But really, at the end of the day, when we ship out a new record, we're, or when we announce a new record, that's kind of when our cycle begins. We're really trying to celebrate and sort of tell the story behind what this piece of music is and give people a deeper sense of what is going to be forthcoming for them in their box? And why should they care? Why should they listen to it? Who is this artist? What is this piece of music? What does the package look like? Why is it something that is worth having in a collection? So there's a lot of storytelling that happens in those seven to 10 days before things actually start shipping. And then once they start shipping, it's kind of a really trying to build anticipation. We're really trying to build excitement, showing things behind the scenes, showing how those records were manufactured, some of the stuff inside of the warehouse, giving more bits of content to make people excited about what is coming up. And then when people start receiving it, it's really a celebration of like, everybody's now listening to it together. Look, I just got my box. Did you get yours yet? I got this. I got that. Is that on a community, that celebration? Do you do that as a community? We try to. In in the past, we've had a forum that worked to some extent, but we really do a lot of that through social media. So Instagram is really a huge opportunity. We're always sharing what people are saying and kind of posting Facebook, obviously, as well. Twitter, as well. Those are kind of the the platforms where we centralize a lot of that conversation. And our team is really interactive with people that are commenting or posting or tagging or whatever it might be. So we really try and foster that dialogue there. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about your operations. Mm -hmm. So you said that when you were starting out, you just bought inventory direct. But when you got to that kind of 500 member threshold or 500 unit threshold, you had to or you were able to start creating your own product. Can you talk to me about what your operations are like today and how you've changed over time, the way that you get your inventory and the way you distribute it and the way you manage it? So in the early days, we did all of our packing and fulfillment ourselves. So we got to about 5,000 units per month before we outsourced it to a third-party logistics company. So basically, we had rented a house in like suburban Denver, basically, and we were packing and filling our records. There's tons of crazy stories in that. But I think what was really great about that is we had the opportunity to really experiment with the packaging and kind of at the same time, the experience and the cadence for the business. And we saw a lot of opportunity to just refine it over time. Like the very first shipment that we did or the very first, I don't know, 10 to 15 shipments that we were did, we were literally hand wrapping every record as if it was a present. And we were writing thank you notes. We were writing handwritten notes, drawing people pictures, just thanking them for being a part of it and encouraging them to share it with their friends. So obviously when you get to like hundreds or thousands, you can't do that. You can't put that same personal touch. 
So we had to iterate our packaging so that we can still kind of provide that unique one-of-one kind of like hand-wrapped personal experience, which is a really interesting challenge to go through. And then what that did, though, going through that process is when we moved to a third-party logistics company, we had a pretty set vision for what we wanted that experience to look like. And we weren't looking for somebody just to put things in boxes and slap shipping labels on them. We were looking for people that would take the same amount of care that we put into the packaging and sort of that process of putting something into a box and getting it to our customers, because that was our lifeblood. We knew that if we didn't deliver on what we were selling, if we didn't have that experience, if we couldn't create something that was meaningful in somebody's life, then they weren't going to stick around. And so much of a part of that value proposition for a customer is like the process of receiving it when it lands on their doorstep and opening it up and being able to pull the package out uh, the first time. You know, I can't even begin to count the number of times where it would show up late or it'd show up just beat to hell or they would pull the record out and it was totally mangled. And just the amount of times that that just totally bummed the person out and made them not want to be a part of VMP, it just totally took away from the value. So really working with the 3PL and designing those systems and those processes that we can maintain that experience over time. So now, yeah, we have a third-party logistics company in just outside Charlotte. It's actually really awesome to be able to work with them. They've, from an efficiency standpoint, they've like created a lot of efficiencies in our business and really streamlined our fulfillment processes to where we can ship 30, 40, 50,000 units inside of a seven to eight day period. And they've been great partners for us. And it's allowed us to scale beyond where we ever could have if we did it ourselves. That's a really interesting story. And the importance of finding a partner who can represent your brand. So you were talking about the operations and how in the early days you treated every package like a present. And I love that with the card and making it really special. And unboxing, of course, is such a big deal in the world of subscription boxes. It's great that you found a partner who fulfilled your expectations. And I know that that was really hard. What specific guidance did you give them that you think made the difference? Or what are some of the, you said you knew how you wanted it done. What were the specific guidelines you gave them? I mean, we were there on the ground with them for, you know, many of the, I don't know, probably four of the first six shipments that we did and really showing them how we did it ourselves. And that was exactly how we wanted it done. And granted, they brought a lot of expertise in terms of like, how do you make those processes actually efficient? So they would, you know, add in like conveyor belts and stuff like that. But we were showing them exactly how we wanted things packed. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? So like our packaging was set up in such a way that it was relatively easy to do, but we required a hand signature on every package. We required that something be put in the box, like in a certain way, wrapped with bubble wrap in a certain way. So we really showed them how we wanted that done and sat with them and watched them do it. But I think one of the key things that we did over time to really hold them accountable is we would actually share pictures that we got back from our customers when that didn't happen. And we would say this is unacceptable. (laughs) And we would show them when things showed up damaged and mangled and send them the exact same pictures that the customer would send us. You know, so many times there were things that were picked and shipped that shouldn't have been because they were just ripped or they were not in the pristine kind of quality. And that's something that you can prevent at the warehouse, right? Yeah. And then there were other times that like the boxes was just totally crushed or they had overstuffed something or used a box that was too big or whatever. So it was just kind of this constant feedback loop where we're like, here's another example of something that's gone wrong. Here's another example of something that's gone wrong. And at the end of the day, it was pretty small in terms of like the total numbers that we were shipping, you know, in terms of what we heard about and actually sent them. But it it gave us an opportunity to reinforce time and time again, like we have a specific standard of quality that we're trying to 
maintain here. And if you guys can't make, if you guys can't do that, then we're just going to go somewhere else. We're going to find another way to get it done. And there were several times where we considered leaving the 3PL that we had or doing our own fulfillment because we thought we could do it better and, and everything. And every time we brought that up, you know, there was another conversation of like, well, what more can we do? How can we continue to improve? What other information can you give us back in terms of how we can refine our processes so that the experience that you're trying to give your customers is what you want it to be? I think you bring up such an important point, and I hope people take this away from our conversation, that when you scale and you bring in outside people, they're inevitably going to do it not as well as you did it. They're definitely going to do it differently than you did it. And in some ways, it's going to be not as well. And I think there's a temptation to say, well, I should just do it myself because they don't get it. But there's a big trade-off. If you don't find partners who can help you scale, you're going to grow a lot more slowly. And what's really great about the example that you shared is that it wasn't easy to move from doing it yourself and treating every package like it was your baby to going to a third-party logistics company but you found one that was in it with you for the long term. And you really, I mean, I love how you described how you were there on the floor with them and then that you were sending them the pictures so that you had this loop. It requires a lot of patience, I think, to scale. And a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, are, are surprised and frustrated by that because the bigger you grow in some ways, the slower things move. I think what you're saying is relevant, not just to, you know, sort of the tangible parts of a business, whether it be hiring contractors to do fulfillment or whatever. But I think as a company grows, as a founder, I mean, I've had to let go of so much and I've had to entrust other people to do things that I used to do for a really long time. And I would think that I did them decently well. But the whole process of building a company, of building a business is kind of this slow and steady process of letting go of the things that you once did and controlled and giving them up to other people. Not because you don't care anymore, but because things have changed and you need to be able to do that in order to continue to scale your business. I mean, time is like the most finite resource that anybody has, right? And you can only scale as much as time as you have available. And if you're a team that of one person or very few people, like you have to find a way to basically create more productivity for the business without having to just work 100 or 150 hour weeks like that's not sustainable and i think oftentimes that process of letting go is really hard it's really emotional it's hard to go like we were in denver and we had a third-party logistics company in charlotte and we were freaked out about having a warehouse that was thousands of miles away having a process that we couldn't like watch on a daily basis and entrusting people that we'd never met before with the relationships of the customers that were basically paying our salaries So it's a really scary process. But if you are willing to go, if you sort of recognize it's what needs to be done in order to scale, and if you're willing to go through the process of really sitting down with somebody and teaching them kind of how to see the world in a similar way that you do, then I think there's a lot of benefits there. And, you know, at the end of the day, the best relationships are the ones that you can go to somebody and say, this is how we do it. This is how we want it to be done or sort of the the values that we bring into this process. And then you find a partner that can actually legitimately do it better than you ever could while still maintaining the certain intangibles that you might want from that experience. And I think that that's what we found through our 3PL company. And it wasn't by accident. Like we really had to force that and kind of make it happen the way that it did. But now I look back and I'm like, there's no way that I would do anything differently. You know, and I talk to people all the time that have their own warehouses and have their own fulfillment teams. And I'm like, that sounds miserable. Like I would not want to do that. Like all you need to do is just find a company, a partner that you can trust and sit with them and teach them how you want business to be done, they'll do it, you know, and hold them accountable. You're right. It's hard and it takes a lot more time. 
at the end of the day, but I think the value that you get in return is totally worth it. Yeah. What are the metrics that you use to make sure that everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing as you've scaled? Can you talk a little bit about what you have on your dashboard to make sure that all the engines are running on time? A couple of things that we would look at, particularly as it related to like the fulfillment side of things and some of the more operational side of things. We'd look at customer service tickets. We'd see how many are we getting? You know, what are some of the trends? How many do we have in our backlog? What's kind of causing a peak that we might have right now? And then from there, there's really kind of a pretty small list of things that might be the root cause. You know, it's potentially a delay at the warehouse where things just aren't shipping as fast as they normally would. There's potentially a manufacturing defect in one of our products, and a lot of people are having effectively the same issue. Or there's some other kind of like mass thing that's come up that we need to jump in and resolve. So really looking at that was something that we would use on a day-to-day basis to just kind of manage the ebbs and flows of the business and making sure like, if nothing else, at least we're delivering the experience that we've promised to our people. Other things that we'd look at is we got really into NPS score. Net Promoter System score. And for those of you who are listening, last season, we interviewed Stu Berman, who runs the Bain Net Promoter system loyalty form, the NPS loyalty form for Bain. It's a metric for measuring the likelihood of your members to refer somebody else to your service. And it's a really good way to know how happy your customers are. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically the, how likely are you to recommend this to somebody else on a scale of one to 10? And it's kind of a, I don't know, there's a lot of commentary about the metric in and of itself. But the thing that we found most valuable is our NPS score actually had a direct relationship with our churn. So we'd be able to forecast churn based on what we were seeing trending from an NPS score. And when we dug into our NPS score and we would get it kind of on a weekly basis, we would really get an understanding of like what's affecting people's experiences and what's affecting their their excitement about VMP. That's where we really started to uncover this fact that like delivery timelines really impact somebody's experience, the condition in which something shows up, the communication, you know, in between kind of the process of an announcement and actually receiving something, you know, those types of things really had an impact, almost an outsized impact on somebody's experience and their willingness to want to stick around and ultimately recommend it to a friend that once we had that level of insight, you know, it became pretty clear as to like what we needed to fix and what we really needed to pay attention to. So now we've got, we take a look at like how our house fulfillment trending, like how many packages are we sending on a daily basis? How far are we from kind of whittling down our monthly shipment allotment? You know, we have a operations guy that will send like, here's how many things we're sending per second right now, which is mind blowing. It's maybe a little bit too minute for what you need on on a daily or monthly basis. And then we're also looking at like, you know, what's our signup rate? What's our scheduled cancellations? Like, what are those forecasts looking like? Are we on track? Are we off track? And one of the complexities of our business is we're having to place inventory orders, you know, three to six months in advance of when we're actually going to ship the product. So there's a lot of things that we need to know kind of in the current month to be able to make decisions for future months as well. So those are all the types of things that we're looking at. I hadn't thought about that, that when you're manufacturing the product for a subscription, you have to have a pretty good idea who's going to be subscribing three months from now. So that takes into account you know, acquisition of new customers, as well as retention of the existing subscribers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours on demand planning and inventory forecasting and the myriad of mistakes that we made in all of those processes. Well, it sounds like you've figured out a bunch of things as you scaled, but I am wondering if you're going to say what you would do differently. Are there any things that you would do differently if you had it to do over again? Kind of one or two big things that you might do differently, if anything? 
in so many different contexts, we kind of opted for growth as opposed to really looking at like, what are the pieces of the foundation that are cracking or might break or what have you? One of my mentors told me a long time ago and kind of wish that I'd listened to this a little bit more intimately now. I think about it almost every day. But he said, every time you double, everything breaks. And I think that's so true. You know, what we didn't do is we didn't really think about like, okay, if we go from like a thousand to 5,000 customers, like, what does that need to look like? What does that process need to look like? What's the experience that we want to look like? And question for us was always like, how do you maintain curation at scale? How do you maintain quality at scale? And we figured those things out. We've, you know, done a really good job and we're continuing to evolve our perspectives on them. But there was kind of like a two or three year period where we just like really struggled and we were just living to fight every single day because the sheer volume that we were pumping out was more than any, you know, small team could really manage on a daily basis. So I think if I would have done anything differently, I would have really kind of focused on those kind of core processes inside of the business. And then I would really take a look at like inventory forecasting and demand planning and everything. Like I said, we made a ton of mistakes and that just burned up the cash that we had. And, you know, when we raised money, then we were using that money to really kind of fund the operations, not really invested in growth like we had wanted to. And that was just because we had bad systems kind of underneath kind of the core processes of the business that I think just being aware of that stuff much sooner, much earlier on, we probably would have mitigated a lot of mistakes, cut a lot of corners, moved a lot faster and potentially wouldn't have had to raise money at all, or at least as much as we ended up raising. So tell me about the money raising experience. At what point did you decide to take outside money? And you mentioned that it ended up being more for operations than for growth as you'd originally planned. But if you could kind of take me back to when you decided to take outside money and what that experience was like for you. Maybe what we could have done before we raised money is we could have invested more. We could have taken a closer look at like what was happening beneath the business that really made us want to raise money because we probably didn't need it. We needed money for reasons different than we thought, you know? And then once we saw we were pouring money into like marketing and all that, like the systems that we had were just breaking beneath us and we couldn't manage it. We couldn't operationalize it. So we really had to go back and invest in those things to be able to grow. I know you're stepping back from your day-to-day role running the business now after, what, seven, eight years of very intense leadership. What advice do you have for other founders who think that the business will fall apart if they're not at the wheel every second? I mean, I get it. I was that person, you know, and in the early days, it was myself and my co-founder and we were making all the decisions. We were doing all the work and, you know, in a way that was super fun because it was like we could control every little piece of it. But then I started to realize like as we brought more people on and as I was able to like hand off responsibilities to people, they would take those things and like I said earlier, do them better than I ever could have myself. And I I would realize too that I didn't actually like doing those types of things, but I more liked kind of the process of controlling it or, or whatever. And I think as our team grew over time, like I really had to get used to letting go of things. And I really had to learn how to trust and empower other people to take certain parts of the business that either I just couldn't manage or didn't want to manage. And that's, it's really hard. It's both a kind of an objective process, but also an emotional process. And I think, you know, there's a lot of founders that I've met before that scares the shit out of them. And they're like, there's no way, there's nobody that could do it better than me. And what's going to happen when I step away? I can't take a vacation. I can't take a day off or whatever, because it's all going to fall apart. Maybe that's true. But if that's true, I don't think you're doing your job really that well, because like, I think the best CEOs that I know or the best founders that I know are the ones that have built teams that can do a lot of the work for them. And it's not that they're just like sitting there on their hands and doing nothing, but they're really putting themselves in a position where they can 
be their best self and they can do their work and do the work that's going to have the highest impact of the business that really only they can do. Just holding on to things for the sake of holding on. It's not doing the job of a CEO well. It's not doing the job of a founder well. And, you know, inevitably you come to a crossroad where you got to take a look at yourself in the mirror and you got to ask yourself, like, who am I? What do I want? What am I doing? Are these things in line with that? And if not, then like, what am I going to do about it? And you have to be willing to show up, you know, make changes as a result. And that was a process for me. You know, I, I found myself still passionate about our business, still passionate about our mission and everything, but tired and fatigued and burned out and not really putting the same energy that I had in the early days into the daily process of the business. And, you know, that became something that was like, yeah, I, maybe it's time for a change, you know, and maybe it's a time for something new and to think about something different than what's going on here. So what's next? It's a good question. I don't totally know yet. I have a lot of ideas for other things or companies or projects that I might want to start. And I'm starting to put together some pieces for that stuff. In the meantime, I'm doing some consulting work. I've partnered with a guy who, you know, Dave Cobbin from Nike, you know, working with companies on kind of crafting remarkable customer experiences and really using our experience in sort of the membership context to be able to bring to other businesses to provide growth strategies or opportunities for them as well. So there's a couple of companies that I'm starting to work with and things that I'm starting to think about, but just trying to take some time. I mean, it's such a grind to like start and scale a business and it just asks so much of you that I think resting and recovering and being able to put myself back together is kind of my top priority right now. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And Dave Cobbin, by the way, featured in the Forever Transaction book, his story about Nike Adventure Club, kids sneaker subscription, which is really interesting Yeah, for those of you who are interested in e-commerce businesses like Vitally Please. That's another really interesting story to to take a look at. But I totally understand you needing to take a break and, and wanting to take a break after building a company so fast and investing so much of yourself in the experience for your members. I want to wrap up with a quick speed round. So these are just really fast questions. Say the first thing that comes into your mind, and we'll move on to the next one. Are you ready? Hesitantly, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. First subscription you ever had? Spotify, I think, was the first one that I actually legitimately paid for. Favorite subscription right now, besides VMP? <laughs> it's definitely VMP. Man, I think Spotify is still the one that I, it's the thing that I use every single day. And I, I love it. Do you collect anything besides albums? I've gotten really into books lately. I wouldn't consider myself a collector, but I have a huge book library that only seems to grow. And I'm just buying more books. What would your colleagues say is your superpower? Oh, man. I think they would say my ability to relate and connect with people and sort of bring people together and, you know, make everybody feel good about what we're working on. And the last time you remember feeling like a member of something, like you belonged. There's this company called Satisfy Running out of Paris, France, and I love it. It's like kind of excessively high-end running apparel, but their quality is super great. And they have these t-shirts that they, they say running cult member, and it's not a subscription, but when I wear that, I'm like, yeah, I'm a part of the running cult. And it means <laughs> something to me just by the way of their brand and, and how they've designed everything and everything like that. Beautiful. You don't have to have a subscription to be a member, at least in my opinion. No. The best brands make you feel like you belong, whether or not they tie that into their pricing decisions. Yep. I love that example. I have to look into that company. Thank you so much, Matt. That was a fantastic conversation. I'm sure that the audience got great, lots of great nuggets and tips. I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Yeah. Thank you, Robbie. It was great to be here. That was Matt Fiedler, founder and chair at Vinyl Me Please. 
For more about Vinyl Me Please, go to vinylmeplease.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Matt, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating and mention Matt's interview if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Subscription Stories.